what we're doing is going through uh, uh, sermon by sermon. The, the book of Acts especially highlights on all of the, the large um, uh, uh, sermons that are given first. A few were from Peter, and then Stephen gave one, and then he was killed, and then it sort of shifted mostly to Paul as, the, as we studied in, in a couple of weeks back, how the, the door to the Gentiles was cracked open, and a few were coming into this what seemed like a very Jewish salvation but after, after the debate in Acts chapter 15, after what God was showing to the apostles in the early church through revivals and, and a very Pentecost-like event that happened with the Gentiles, there was really no distinction between that and what happened to the Jews. The door to the Gentiles, which is the ends of the earth, that's, that's us, if, if you're here, we are about as far away from Jerusalem as you can possibly get without start trekking back the other side. This is the ends of the earth. Welcome. The gospel made it because the apostles and the early Christians carried it with urgency throughout the whole known world. And it's been our amazing privilege to see what was happening. What we see today <coughs> is Paul's, or at least one section of, bless you brother, uh, Paul's third missionary journey. So he went on one journey throughout uh, 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 Europe preaching the gospel. And then he, he went on a second one and went even further over to Greece. That's when he went to Macedonia and Thessalonica and Philippi and Corinth and whatnot. But now, and our last sermon was Paul back in Acts chapter 17. It was Paul in Athens, the great ancient city. But since then, he's gone back to uh, Corinth, spent, uh, sorry, not back to Corinth. He's gone to Corinth, spent 18 months there, and then he went back to his sending church in Antioch. Let's just get ourselves a bit oriented on the map and on the timeline. Paul's now gone back to his sending church in Antioch and went from there on his third missionary journey all the way back through Europe going to the churches that he had planted. And he spent a privileged two and a half years in Ephesus. Two and a half years with the Apostle Paul, resident teacher and preacher and discipler. That's something I would, I would travel the world to be under. Well, Paul was there for two and a half years. And in Acts chapter 19, verse 10, we see this amazing summary of his ministry there for the two and a half years that he was in Ephesus. Acts chapter 19, verse 10 said uh, that for, for five hours, verse 9 tells us, five hours every day he was in the hall of Tyrannus giving lectures, Bible studies, answering questions, for five hours every day. We often apologize here for how short our sermons are, for how little we're able to study the Bible, but we make do with what we can do. They had five hours every day for over two years. It says in verse 10, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, that's not Asia as we think of it today. That's really uh, what is modern-day Turkey uh, area near the, the Mediterranean. But think of that. All of the residents of that entire land strip, that huge region of those Roman provinces, had heard something about Jesus and his salvation that, that these Jews were preaching. They had heard that from one little locale where Paul was preaching day in, day out the gospel of Jesus Christ. What an amazing testimony. Well, what happened undoubtedly is that many were saved and then a riot broke out because that's what happens when preachers really preach. People are changed so much that the culture itself starts bubbling over and changing and shifting because people change. They spend their money differently. They spend their time differently. They spend their leisure differently. They, they, they run their families and their business practices differently. That's what the gospel does. It changes people. 
But it had done it so much in the city of Ephesus as Paul just kept on reforming the hearts of these people through the word of God. People just kept on changing so much that the idol makers, the blacksmiths who would use silver and, and, and make them into idols and then sell them to the fools who would come and give them their life savings so that they could take home a little god, put it on their pedestal and, and worship, people stopped doing that. And so these, these silversmiths who were, the, who were the, the, the large CEOs, cigar in mouth sort of men of the town, they got very upset. Their whole, their whole industry is gone. They've ruined this, this, this economy of this whole large province. And so they start a riot. They, they chant. They uh, cause a chaos in the streets. And after that, Paul decides to leave Ephesus and just leave that to the local Christians. He leaves, and on his way back to Jerusalem, he stops by Miletus, which is a little port city. He stops by there. After, sorry, after Ephesus, he goes around other places, and then on his way back to Jerusalem, he stops by Miletus, and he sends word to the elders of that church that he'd spent two and a half years at least amongst. So many of them, he would have risen up. He would have laid their, his hands on them, prayed over them, preached to them, taught them how to preach, taught them the gospel. He would have seen many of them saved. He calls those elders, and he says, sends a messenger, says, come and meet me in Miletus so that I can talk to you and have one final conversation. The importance of this speech is enormous in the book of Acts. This is the only sermon that we have recorded from Paul. We have the letters, we have his writings, but this is the only sermon that we have written down from Paul to Christians. The rest of them have been debates or have been mainly evangelistic sermons, but today, we see what Paul says to the church and especially to the leaders. This is like a, a valedictory speech at the end of a graduation ceremony. This is Paul leaving and finally leaving the continent. He's going to leave the, the church in the hands of these elders and he's going to give them a very strict charge. This is not to everybody. This is to the elders of the church. Verse 18 and 19 in Acts chapter 20. I hope you're there by now. Acts chapter 20 verses 18 and 19 read like this, when they came to him, that is the elders finally came to Paul, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Today's sermon that Paul is going to speak over this, this, this band of brothers who lead the church it has not just been something that has been on his mind in his last boat trip. He sort of saw a sunrise, got a bit inspired, thought he'd throw something out to the elders. It's not something that just came to him during the, the night sleeps that he was having. This was not something he came up with on his stroll the day before. This is something that for 30 years since his conversion, he has been living for. He has been suffering for. He's gone single for this mission. He's been struck down multiple times with rods and with stones and with whips and imprisoned multiple times, chased out of more cities than I can count for this message. What he's going to say to them is highly significant for us. This sermon must be taken as a test and a reminder for every age of the church. Firstly, we ask the questions that, that come out of this text that we're going to read in a moment. Firstly, we ask... Is the message we preach as a church, in our generation, especially this congregation, is the message we believe and preach Paul's message? Is it the same message as Paul's? 
And secondly, we ask, are the ministers that we have produced ministers like Paul? If we are amiss on either of these things, the church has to take herself to God to be beaten back into shape by the ministry of the word and the force of the Holy Spirit. Think of the blacksmith. The blacksmith who would take a, a, a clump of metal and purify it, heat it up so that it's, it's white hot, and he would put it on the, 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 the large solid anvil, and with his hammer he would beat that piece of hot metal into shape so that it, it forges whatever it is that he's making. Hopefully not an idol, but a, a sword, a, a shield, whatever it is that he's making. He heats it up and then smashes it against that unchanging, undented anvil so that it takes its designed shape. The church needs to see this sermon as the anvil, that the Holy Spirit would take us and heat up our hearts and give us conviction that we are pressed against the shape of ministry and the message that Paul preached. We are compared to that. We're put on top of it and beaten into shape by Paul's example. So let's read the fullness of the sermon that Paul, with this bleeding heart, and you have to recognize he thinks this is going to be the last time he preaches to Christian elders. He, he sees himself going to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit told him he has to go there, but when he gets there, he'll be arrested, and he largely thinks, and mostly it seems that uh, he does not have perfect understanding of the future, but he understands, he thinks that he's going to go and die. So with his last words to the Ephesian elders, he says this, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me there. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish the, my course and the ministry that I've received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure... I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, or, uh, cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me 
In other words, he worked for himself, making his own money, not taking a wage from the church. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. May God bless the reading of his own inerrant word among us this morning. That's where we amen at Hope If you're new, I say, may God bless the reading of his inerrant authoritative scripture to us this morning. Amen. We need that. We need God here to bless it to us or it is dead words on our ears. First, what we're going to see is Paul's gospel message. And then we're going to look at gospel ministers according to Paul's design. Firstly, the gospel message. Look at verse 20. Paul says, as he's looking back on his life when he was among them, He says, I'm remembering, I recollect that I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Profitable. Firstly, I want you to know that the gospel is profitable, meaning that it's beneficial. It meets a need that you have. What I want us to to realize and, and recollect is that Paul did not stand foot in Asia print out thousands of survey cards, put them all in, in post boxes all around the city, ask everybody by a survey what, what you want to get out of church, what, what you feel your felt needs are in life and, and how God might best serve you. God did not send Paul to survey to find out what we blind, dead sinners feel like we need. He came declaring what our need was and that need is often not felt. The gospel is profitable to you because it actually meets a need. And there are many here among us today who just don't realize that, who don't realize that what the world needs is the gospel, who spend a lot of time thinking about just how we can, and and church leaders do this all the time, just trying to convince the world that we're still relevant. Please, what can we do to convince you that the church has something to offer? You You want social programs? We can do that. You want a hospital? We'll do that. You want, you want us to be open and affirming and welcome? We'll do that better than everybody. Give us a flag to wave. That the church has been often convinced that it needs to convince the people that it is necessary. In fact, the church often tries to convince itself that it's even relevant or, or worth existing on the earth. Who cares if we're shut down for months and months at a time? Is, is it really that unprofitable? But here Paul is saying that what What that gospel was, the first thing he realized it to be was profitable for people. In other words, needed. People need the gospel. Do you as Christians recognize that? Do you you think that you need to sweeten the deal somehow about how God might add something to their life? Or are you convinced that the most needful need is the gospel? Spurgeon used to say, I have a great need for Christ, and I have a great Christ for my need. He understood in every other part of suffering, in every other part of human need, in every other part of life, the ultimate thing that the church has been entrusted with is the gospel, and that our neighbors, our world, our families, our individual souls need nothing more than we need Jesus crucified, dead, and buried, arisen, and alive on the throne for us. The gospel is profitable. It needs no polishing. It needs no addition. The greatest need of our community is is not water. It is not food. It is not shelter or safety. Those things can happen from men and by nature. 
Men, men dying of thirst, they can find water falling from heaven. If men is dying from hunger, he or she can, can, can see it grow up from the earth and cultivate food. If man or woman needs shelter, they can take what they see around them and, and, and formulate some kind of safety for themselves. But the gospel has to be delivered by Christians to lost sinners. It does not fall down from heaven for people to find, perchance. It does not grow up out of the natural world that people can discover. It does not lay around them that mankind can, can naturally put it together themselves like they can for shelter. The gospel needs proclaiming. It needs people with the boldness and the, and the maniacal, almost idiocy, according to the world, to just stand in one place five hours a day, two and a half years, when there was lots of other programs he could have been running. And he stood there and proclaimed the word of Jesus Christ to that lost city. That is what the gospel is. It is, first of all, profitable. It creates the hunger that it then satisfies. It diagnoses the disease that itself is the cure of. The gospel does both of those things. You need to know, friend, that the gospel is profitable to you, a sinner, because you are in need of forgiveness. God will not wait forever. He requires your life of you, and one day you will die. It may be of, of any kind of cause. It could be soon. It could be in 50 years from now. But you will die, and you will have to pay for sin. What God demands from you, what God demands of you as somebody who has lived in his world and sinned against his law and rejected his grace and mercy, he requires a perfect atonement, a perfect measure of payment for your sin. And that will be nothing less than an eternity in hell for our sin, being punished, paying back the standards of God's justice. But, but what, what drove Paul to proclaim for so long and with so much urgency to so many people is that there is good news. The bad news that the gospel shows us is met itself by the good news that the gospel brings, which is that while God demands a perfect sacrifice from you, he does not demand that it come from you. In fact, he has himself in the person of his son become a human to go to the cross to pay the very payment that you needed to make, that he demands of us the perfect atonement, but provides for us that perfect atonement, that you, if you're a sinner today and you've not, you've not come to, maybe you've known Jesus in the past in, in some way, maybe you've been involved in churches before, you've, you've known the gospel, much of what I'm saying is old news to you, but if you have not grasped that salvation with the most desperate of hearts, not received Jesus, repented of sin, and trusted resting on the cross, for there is the full payment of your sin that leaves you needing to bring nothing else. If you've not done that, you are still in your sin. And so I proclaim that the gospel, no matter how relevant it may seem to you, it is profitable for you. You must receive it and be gained, blessed by it, come into the full salvation of Jesus Christ. The gospel gives what nothing else can give, which is life in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He proclaimed what was profitable to them, which is the gospel. But next, I want you to see that the gospel message is also free for all. Look at verse 21. Verse 21 says that Paul was testifying both to Jews and to Gentiles or, or Greeks, because that's the, the area he was in. 
both to Jews and to Greeks or Gentiles, non-Jews, of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Or we read back in chapter 19, verse 10, when he said that he was, uh, that, that all people heard in Asia the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. We know that the Ephesian church, if we go and read the, the letter to the Ephesians that Paul wrote later, it was a church with Jews and Gentiles who had been saved into it. It was a church that was largely multi-ethnic because that was the, the gospel that Paul preached. He had learned the lessons. He had heard the debates. He had seen it in Scripture, what God had been revealing to that first generation of Christians, that, that there is no background, ethnic, religious, what particular sin you've had, what, what particular things you haven't done, that there is no tears, no steps, no podiums at the foot of the cross. When Paul, when we proclaim the gospel, we are proclaiming an open door with level ground that anyone can come in. And come in, they must. There is not an ounce of mercy or grace outside of the Lord Jesus. But in Jesus, there is a flood there is, an, there is a deep, bottomless well of mercy in Jesus Christ for any sinner that comes. Both Jew and Gentile can come in. For Jesus has been ripped apart in the crucifixion so that we can be made one healed, whole man of humanity, the church of every race, pagans, Jews, the self-righteous, the guilt-ridden, the confident, the ashamed, the lowly or the, the high philosophical teachers, the old covenant Jews or the lost Gentiles. Jesus had died for a vast number of every tribe and tongue on earth. And so Paul preached to every one of them. I want to ask you, maybe you're here today and you could be of one of, of any different kind of category and you think that the gospel is really good for maybe other types of people, for the good church kid or for the, for the, for the upper middle class white BMW driving family, right? Jeep. We'll go, that's as high as we'll reach here. Come on. 4114. Jeep. You know, they, that sort of family. Or, or it's good for the, the really lost, down and out drug addict family. That they find Jesus and good on them. They needed that crutch. Maybe you think that the gospel is good for just about anybody and just about everybody except for you. And you're convinced that had you come forward, that had you come up to the throne of God and begged for mercy and forgiveness, you would be the one that God would turn away. You'll be the one that God will be much more pleased to pour out wrath and punishment on than be forgiven in the blood of his son. But I want to tell you that if you are a righteous person, who, who just you think it's rude for me to even call you a sinner. I'm not sorry. Maybe, maybe that's you. You're, you're quite righteous and you feel pretty good about your deeds and your, your life living, but, but God calls you guilty. Maybe you're an avid church attender, but you've never known Christ in a powerful way. Maybe you're a new age spiritualist and you're not religious, you, you, but you know the spirits, you, you're on that side of things. Well, well, to you, God calls those things unclean, an abomination. In fact, your enemies simply deceiving you. Maybe you're somebody who, who is committed to your ancestral religion. You don't want to go against your, your fathers, your forefathers, your grandfather and mothers. They're, they're in that religion. That's, that's mine. It's a, it's a matter of loyalty. But but God has sent those ancestors to hell for it and today offers you mercy and demands that you repent of it. Maybe you're somebody who is just not religious. You're a bit apathetic. Maybe even you're a truth seeker, wherever it may be. Maybe you're shameful and drawn back because of all of your guilt. 
Maybe you're, you're, you're so left-wing, you just think you wouldn't fit in in some conservative fundamentalist church like those Reformed Baptists. No, the gospel's just not for you. But to every person, whoever you are, whatever your background, whatever your sin, we assert with boldness that Jesus is the Savior because he died for all. That Jesus is God. For, he resurrected by God's power for all. God is making and has made Jesus king, for he has been ascended to the throne above all. Jesus is the, the merciful priest for anybody because he now prays and opens the doors of heaven for all and for any, whoever you are, whatever your past. Don't let the devil whisper to you that you are somehow unique. For God did not just send an angel, a messenger, a prophet, somebody who might miss you out in their blood. God has sent himself in the flesh so that the blood that was shed would be able to cover anyone and all. The gospel message is profitable and it is open to any. And then I want to show you that in Acts chapter 20, we see that the gospel message may go by many different names, yet it revolves around the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look with me to verse 21. I'm going to make a bit of an argument here. Uh, and if you're not all that kept up with all the, the, the terrible views out in Christendom of the world, then maybe, maybe you can just uh, 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 ignore this part and tune back in when we start talking about the, the gospel again. But, but in many parts of Christendom today, the, in, in the kingdom of God, people in the church want to say that there's, there's different messages and, and there's different messages for different types of people. In verse 21, we see that Paul calls his message, this gospel message, he calls it, the testifying about repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's one way he calls it. He says it's repentance to God and faith towards Jesus. Verse 24, he calls it, he says, uh, uh, I want to finish my race and my course and the ministry that I received to testify, same word, testify to the gospel of the grace of God. There's another title he's using. So the message that Paul preached, he's called repentance and faith. He's called the gospel of grace. In verse 25, we see that he, he, he calls it, uh, he says, I've gone among you proclaiming the kingdom of, the, sorry, proclaiming the kingdom. There's another title for the same message that he's proclaiming. It's faith and repentance. It's the gospel of grace. It's proclaiming the kingdom. And in verse 27, we see it called the whole counsel of God. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Many people want to set these things against, them, uh, against one another, saying that there's, there, there's the gospel and there's one gospel called the kingdom that Jesus preached and another gospel called the, 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 the gospel of grace that Paul preached. You need to know that this is, this is far spread, it is heretical, and it is damnable. We, we don't believe that. We believe, Paul, one message that could be called either of those things the kingdom message or the gospel message. Other people try and set faith and repentance against themselves. Say, say repentance is a work. Faith is not a work. If you add repentance to the call, then you're adding works to the gospel. Not according to Paul. He calls faith and repentance the gospel of grace. Or we see that some people will try and make the gospel so narrow that, you know, we just need to be Christians who just talk about these three points. 
God loves us, Jesus died for us, we all love each other and get along. That's the gospel message. Let's not eke out any further than that. But Paul calls the gospel, which is both the strict message of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, he also calls it the whole counsel of God. Because when you talk about the gospel and you preach it in its fullness, you preach a very clear Christology, just fancy theological word for meaning Jesus' study. Well, when you study Jesus, which is to study the gospel, then you touch every significant realm and category of doctrine. You talk the sovereignty of God, you've got sin, you've got God's ultimate purpose in in eschatology, you've got atonement studies, you've got the, the, the nature of Jesus being both God and man, you've got soteriology, faith and, and justification, you've got it all right there. You preach the gospel in its fullness, you preach the whole counsel of God. You call people to trust in Jesus and turn from their sin. You're preaching repentance towards God and faith in Jesus Christ. When you preach the gospel of grace, that is the the gospel means good news. The good news of God's grace. Not the news that God is destroying you under his law, but the news that God is saving you, forgiving you by his mercy and his grace For you have heard the whole counsel of God proclaimed through the death of Jesus. You have repented from sin towards God, placed your faith in Jesus, and therefore the gospel of grace becomes true for you. And he also can rightly call it the kingdom, and so do we. Because to talk of the kingdom is to talk about the the cosmic effects of the gospel. That Jesus didn't just die and rise so that we can live our normal life History go its normal way, but we have some sort of assurance that we'll be forgiven when we go to heaven. We can sit on clouds, shoot arrows with cherubs, and play harps. Not the gospel. But for the, the kingdom, this idea of the kingdom has this all-reaching cosmic effect that because God who made it all came into it and died to redeem it, therefore we have expectations that, that go to the end of history. We have expectations that God will renovate all things because Jesus is the king over the kingdom of God. So all of these things, however we talk about it, let us remember that what Paul said is that I preach Christ and him crucified. That's the heart of the message. The absolute heart of the message. Whatever else we can call it, however other angle we come at it from, it is the message for you and for anyone today to receive that Jesus died for sinners He rose to secure eternal life for anybody that comes. And he now sits in heaven to give mercy and forgiveness for all. That is Paul's message. And then we see the ministry. So remember, Paul's talking to elders. He's reminded them of the message he's been proclaiming, testifying, declaring, and preaching. But he now talks to them about the ministry that they have. Look at verse 28. And in this section, what we see is Paul just uses inter, uh, 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 words that um, uh, interact with each other that are really the same meaning, but using different words. He, he uses the word pastor, elder, and overseer, which can otherwise be translated uh, bishop. They're all the same role. These are the same guys. There are a bunch of elders who are pastors, who are overseers. Uh, and, and, and that forms what we view of the, of the office of the leaders of God's church. Not three different roles, but three different ways to describe the same group of men. Look at verse 28. To them he gives this charge. Pay careful attention to yourselves. 
Before speaking of everything that the minister is supposed to be doing regarding others, Paul starts talking about what the pastor needs to do regarding himself. A builder cannot do much good if his tools are rusting. A surgeon can do no good if his instruments are blunt and dirty. And so the tools in the hand of a minister of the new covenant, pastors, elders, overseers, the tools that are in their hand are in fact their own very life and soul and person. And so if that, that instrument is, is dirty, is impure, is lazy, is rusty, then he will do no good work for God. Charles Spurgeon wrote of this in his lectures to students that he would give, to all those who would be, be preachers. He would, he would tell them of the importance of the minister's self-watch. He quotes Murray McShane, who said this. He was an 1800 Scottish minister, one of, my, one of my, my favorite biographies to read. Murray McShane said, in great measure, according to the purity and perfection of the instrument will be the success. It is not great talents that God blesses, so much as likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. Not, not awful meaning negative. Only negative for those on the receiving end of it. The kingdom of darkness shakes as ministers rise up, holy, devoted, and Christ-like. When God's instruments are sharp and clean, his work is powerful. Commenting on this exact text, Richard Baxter, in the 1600s in England, he was a Puritan, and he wrote to pastors, take heed to yourselves, because the tempter will make his first and sharpest onset on you. Take heed, therefore, brothers, for the enemy has a special eye upon you. You shall have his most subtle insinuations and incessant solicitations and violent assaults. And as wise and learned as you are, Take heed to yourselves, because he will outwit you. The devil is a greater scholar than you, and a nimbler disputant. He can transform himself into an angel of light to deceive. Take heed, therefore, brethren, for the enemy has a special eye on you. Before Paul can tell them how to treat others, Paul has told them, carefully, watch yourself. And then he tells them about the care for the flock. Look at the rest of verse 28 there. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. Paul is using flock language here, sheep language here, shepherd language here. Making the church of God a flock of sheep and the man set over that, the, the group of men set over that to lead are pictured as shepherds. That's in fact the exact same Greek word for shepherd and pastor. The exact same word. Sheep have many, many dangers, but the good shepherd oversees them. Can I just, in case you look up on this stage and see the guys that preach to you and, and then you read this, that, that we're, the, we're overseers of your souls and you start quaking a little bit because you know how, how fallen we are. Let me just encourage you that there is an ultimate senior pastor or chief shepherd in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says, You were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Capitalized. Jesus Christ, the ultimate shepherd, 
who will never run, will never fail, and will never let you down, friends. Jesus is your shepherd. And yet, in his ordinary means, he delegates under shepherds for your earthly pilgrimage here. These shepherds must not be slack. They must keep a close watch. These shepherds cannot be lazy. They have to keep a close watch. These shepherds cannot be selfish. They have to keep a close watch. They cannot be distracted. They cannot be distant. They cannot be overly harsh. They have to keep a close watch. Paul's commands here echoes. If, if you're familiar with Ezekiel, he's echoing what God spoke through the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 33 and 34. Ezekiel was sent from God to, to warn Israel, and especially he had this section where he was preaching to the leaders. This is the Old Testament, Acts chapter 20. And Ezekiel said in verse, chapter 33, verse 6, he said, in the, in the context of sort of a city that's under assault, you can imagine an ancient city, high walls, and there's watchmen on the walls, and they're looking out for the enemies. He says, if, if the watchman blows the trumpet because the Syrians are coming, or the Romans are marching in. If, if, the, if the watchman blows the trumpet and everybody says, shut up, it's late, pour another drink of wine, let's, let's get back to reveling, the watchman before God will be innocent. God will, will kill those people. God will see those people condemned for their own foolishness. But, he says in verse 6, if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, so that the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any one of them, that person is taken away for his own sin, sure. But this blood I will require at the watchman's hand. Now hear verse 26 of Paul. He says, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. This is Paul echoing Ezekiel's warning. He's saying, I am not the man that's been lazy in his duty. I have not sought my own needs, my own goods. I've not been lazy. I've not been cowardly and stopped speaking to you what is hard to hear and difficult to say. I've not done it because I want before God. If you fall away for your own sin, that will be between you and God. But it will be over my crying, praying, preaching, declaring, testifying body. My knees will be calloused before you are thrown into the pit of hell, Paul is saying. You may die for your own sin, but that will be clean from my hands. I have testified. I have preached. I have declared. I have urgently warned. It is on you if you will not hear. And he also echoes Ezekiel 34. This is when Ezekiel gives, gives a, a shuddering indictment against the priests, the prophets, the kings, of Israel. For they have sought themselves in the day that they needed to declare a very unpopular message, but the people instead were led astray. And the shepherds did nothing. Ezekiel says this by the Spirit of God Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves? Should you not, should not shepherds feed the sheep? That's a, that's a pretty black and white question. God's really condescending them at that point. One job shepherds have, it might be a, you know, a, bit, a bit, bit archaic, this opinion. I sort of think that shepherds should feed the sheep. Would you look at that crazy opinion? I know. Ezekiel says, shouldn't shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. One, one, one clue. What do you have to do to eat the sheep's fat? You've got to kill the sheep. Can't eat that while it's still on there. You eat the fat. 
You clothe yourselves with their wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you did not bring back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. Some were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep, God says, my sheep were scattered. Out of self-preservation and selfishness and cowardice, men who get power in the church realize pretty quickly that the most loyal people are the most manipulated people. So they think. They think that the most generous are those who have been tricked. God will give it back. It's your tithe. It's a seed. God will pour it back into your life. Pay the pay the tithe, forget the the child's hospital bill, God will do it, my Mercedes needs refilling. They think that the most dedicated servers are those who are exploited. They think that the most obedient are those who are threatened. They think that the most adoring people are those who hear all their life soft and favorable words. But Paul's command to the ministers is one to carefully watch the flock. And last point we see here, that it is... It is incumbent on the ministers to recall the value of the flock. If any of this is going to make sense, the urgency that you need to live your life, the urgency you need to watch yourselves, the the, the care with which you have to take of the flock, it makes sense because of what Paul says about the value of the flock. Look again at verse 28. He says in verse 28, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. It's not so much what we're told to do that gives it value, but who tells us to do it. And in this instance, it's not the congregation ultimately, it's not ultimately the denomination or the seminary at all, it is the Holy Spirit who puts ministers, elders, preachers, however faithfully they do, faithlessly they do their task, however bad they are at it, however false doctrine they preach, It's God who put them in that place by the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who will testify to God on that day of judgment when they give account. Verse 28, we also see this is the church of God. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of Paul. No, the church of God. How many ministers would cease their destructive, self-glorifying, glittered, prosperity-living lives in the ministry if they just remembered who the abused sheep belong to? They're They're not there in the streets of a palace with their own queen. They've been made stewards to look after and to protect and preserve God's queen, the church. She belongs to him, and he's coming back one day. And when he comes back and he finds that she's dressed like a whore, she's shown off to all the world, she's been sent out to do whatever the world wants her to do, she's been abused, she's been harshly spoken to, she's been malnourished. When God finds that done to his queen, what will he do to those false shepherds? The church belongs to God. It is God's church. And lastly, you see, you see, the, 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 fully, uh, the full circle this comes in the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is involved in the church by giving it the leaders. God is involved in the church by owning it. 
But Jesus is involved in the church as the eternal son by shedding his blood. The third reason that the church is so valuable is because it was obtained with his own blood. This flock, this bride, this church, it did not come into redemption under the the blood of a lamb or a goat or at the cost of even an angel or a dead prophet. God, so deep was our sin, so guilty were our souls, so condemned were our spirits, so hopeless was our situation, so lost we were in darkness. God himself had to strap on human nature, come down here and enact salvation himself. Only his blood could cleanse us that deeply. Only his life could be given as an offering to substitute so many lost souls. And now the church All those in the church belong to Jesus twice. He made them and he died to repurchase them back from sin. And so here here is the warning that Paul has given. It, It sort of climaxes on this. You need to take so much attention to yourselves, so much attention for the flock, so much value for who she is before God because, look at verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. It's so, so very common to hear of, of churches that maybe, maybe they've never gone through a split in 100 years. They've, they've never really had to deal with what all those fundamentalists and strict doctrinalists have to deal with, all of these false teachings and, and errors. You know, they just don't have to deal with that. If a church isn't dealing with false teachers, it's run by false teachers. Bill doesn't start attacking his own outposts. Goodness me. It's not attacking, defending against teaching against false teaching, always in arms against that attack, then the enemies have taken the throne room. The wolves are coming, Paul says. And you see this interesting relationship between verse 29 and verse 30. Verse 29, if you read it, you sort of, you sort of think, wow, if I'm going to watch for false teachers, I'm going to look for a guy who comes into church with an axe on his back, half raggedy beard, probably blood dripping from his mouth and a pentagram drawn on his forehead. Look at it, he's, he's a fierce wolf coming in to not spare the flock. Like he, he eats people, false teachers, keep an eye out for him. But that describes the spiritual reality of what verse 30 describes the human reality that we see. Just take verse 30 on its own. From among yourselves, so church, people, Christians, will arise. So, so they're leaders, they, they prove themselves, they show themselves, they sort of make their way up the ranks in Christianity. Men speaking, so they're good teachers, they're good communicators. Twisted things, not entirely new things. Not entirely unchristian things. They, they've taken Christianity, they've taken that body of belief, that doctrine of the church and Twisted it a little bit. It's not that different. You, you recognize most of the elements here, but it's, it's just twisted. It's the same path. It looks the same when, you, when you're walking step by step. But if you take the, the broader look, you see that it twists towards damnation. All they are is just nice, cunning, smart, friendly, hospitable, twisted 
soul-destroying wolves. And so, you need to keep so hard a watch. They come from within. How very harrowing for the elders sitting there. Like, we're the, we're the good guys. Paul's warning us, go back to the church, get on the walls, be watchmen, because the bad guys might come. No, no, no. There's some of you sitting right here that I've laid my hands on, that I've prayed over, you will be the ones. Some of you will be the ones to attack the sheep through false teaching. How horrible to have heard. Is it me, they would have asked. Will it be me? If they thought along Paul's lines, they would have thought like that. False preachers, false teachers, false shepherds, the wolves, they come in, they pervert the gospel of free grace and justification by faith alone. They come in and confuse the Trinity and, 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 and confuse the divine natures between human and Je- the human and divine nature of Jesus. They come in and they muddy the waters about the atonement, most of the time leaving behind that justice and wrath of God that's so old-fashioned. They come in and they take away from the purity, inerrancy, authority of the Word of God. They come in and they introduce other possible ways to God outside of Jesus Christ. These men must be treated like Paul treated them. If you act like a wolf, you get kicked like a dog. That's Paul's ministry operation. Taking care, careful attention, watch over the flock. As we finish here, we've been asking four brief questions. As each, chap, each sermon that we looked at in the book of Acts, we've been asking a couple of questions. At the end, I'm going to make a bit, a bit of an argument that I hope you agree with. I think that Paul ended this time, I think he left the Ephesian elders very frustrated and without much hope for their state. But anyway, let's look at these four verses and then we'll end on on that application. Questions we've been asking is, how does this show us the developing narrative of salvation throughout all of Scripture? How does this sermon really bring that story to its, uh, how does it uh, 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 contribute to the story? Well, what we see in the Old Testament was that God said, as he did in Ezekiel, He said, you failed shepherds, I will come. One day in the future, this glorious day, they didn't know what it would look like, but he said, I will come myself. I will shepherd my people. I will bring them in. I will shed the blood. I will feed my sheep. Friends, what we have in Jesus and his ministry that Paul now looks back on, he's saying that was promised, that was done, and we live in this age now called the church when Jesus has given his life. He has paid for the sheep. He has fed us through his body and his word. And now what we call the Great Commission is nothing more than Jesus from heaven as the overseeing shepherd using us, his sheep and shepherds on earth, to reach the lost sheep that are scattered. Jesus said in John 10, I have many sheep that are not of this fold. Friends, we must go and get them, for Jesus is the shepherd that is doing so. That's how we we see this development. And now we, we can also ask, how does this sermon... We've been asking of each sermon. How does this transition us from an understanding of old covenant of law to the new covenant of grace? Like in the old covenant, the new covenant times, we have false shepherds. We have wolves, false teachers, false prophets. But the distinction is a distinction between now and back then. The old covenant was, was promises that God had made largely to a nation born according to the flesh. 
that he was promising nation, uh, making promises to the nation of Israel, the minority of whom were truly born again. You were in that covenantal people simply by being born of the right bloodline. I'm a Jew, got the circumcision certificate, oh, I've got the, the blood, the, the skin color, I've got the blood tests to show it. I'm, I'm, I've got, I'm the father, I'm the son of Abraham. I'm in the group. But in the new covenant, the people of God are a pure, wholly regenerate people. There's no one truly in the flock of God in the new covenant times that are unsaved. For you are not brought into this flock by birth, but by second birth. Covenant of grace is not what you have been born into, not what you have done, a Christian family, baptized as a child, none of that. But personal faith to Jesus Christ brings you into the flock of God. That is the entry point. Thirdly, second last, we ask the question, how does this sermon that Paul puts forward, this warning sermon, how does it preach Jesus Christ? And it shows us that he is the good shepherd that Jesus even spoke of in John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is the one who died for us. Verse 3, he says, The sheep hear his voice, and he calls out his own by name, and they come. But when Jesus speaks, and he, he, he always speaks to the heart, when he seeks to save, it is his own voice that calls you out. Friend, if you're a Christian, it is Jesus' own voice that called you to life. If you're not a Christian yet, then what you're hearing through the conviction of your heart, the, the truth of these words is that Jesus himself is speaking to you to call you to life. Come, listen, have faith. We see that Jesus, in verse 16, as we read before, he said, I have sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. Paul is telling us, as Jesus did in John 10, Jesus died for the sheep. He now lives and prays for the sheep. He is the fence around his sheep. He is the Lord who will bring every soul home that he purchased. Lastly, we can ask, what modern day applications can we learn as a church on mission and as individuals when we read this sermon? My argument is, if you go to verse 37 with me, I think Paul left here terribly disappointed whether he told them or not. I think his worst fears were confirmed. He went to them with this, this heartfelt desire to communicate to them they need to be watchful. There is no greater need, there's nothing more worth crying about in their life than the fact that wolves will come and the church of God will suffer attack. And if they are not ready, it will fall. Verse 37. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him. Listen to the terror and tragedy of verse 38. Being sorrowful most of all because of the word that he had spoken that they would not see his face again. You see the tragedy there? Do I need to outline it a bit more? Paul said that for three years, day and night, I kept on warning you, the church will suffer persecution, the church will be tricked, will be twisted, the, the wolves will come, the false teachers will come. You be careful. For, for so long, he stayed there so that he could drive that message home. But what they were most sorrowful about was the fact that Paul was leaving them. When Paul was walking away, he wanted to communicate to them his heart. 
that, that he said, I don't care about my life. I'll go where the Spirit takes me. I'll die. Think that way about yourself as well. The important thing is the gospel of grace. But when he left, they didn't have that heart. They were still elders. They weren't necessarily wolves yet. There, there wasn't necessarily an overtaking of false doctrine. But when he left, their heart was most sorrowful, not over false teaching, not over the potential of false brothers, but over the fact that they missed Paul. If you're Paul at that point, you're furious. Maybe the fact that he'd spent so long there was a little bit of a disservice, that they got so used to the amazing leader, and, and this is where our application lands. Do not love so much your, your leaders that the message is just a path to them. Or that the message is just some kind of medallion around their neck that you like the way they talk and, yeah, the message is great. I'm sort of in the, in the cool club, the theological Calvinist crew of the day, whatever. But, but the message itself is somewhat secondary. We love him. We love them. We love this group, this conference, this tribe. The application must be that you have to, I'm not going to say love your pastor less. I'm not going to say that. I'm going to say love your pastor whoever they are into the future. Maybe you're not from here. Love your pastor more appropriately. Never idolizing. Never putting up on a pedestal. For when you do that, not just that when they sin, they let you down so much, but even worse, when they are faithful and they persevere and they preach powerfully, you will love them more than you love the gospel. You, you'll cry over them leaving more than you cry over the, the loss of brothers in the church. Unlike the Ephesians who ended up having false teaching come in, Timothy was sent to them to correct false teaching. They're warned against again in Revelation. Paul, John then writes to them and tells them about the false brothers in their midst that they are failing to deal with. Ephesus was not ready because its brothers loved Paul more than it loved Jesus, I think. Let's pray. While your eyes are closed and your head's bowed, I want to reiterate that if you have not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ, you know that you're still in your sin. Maybe you're a visitor, maybe you've been here a long time. If you are not in right standing with God through the blood of his son, today needs to be the day of your salvation. After the service, myself, and some of the other guys, there'll be people to talk to down the front. Please make sure you talk to somebody who brought you, somebody who's here, who, who is a, a part of the church. We want to point you to Jesus. I finish with verse 32. Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Father God, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you for the, the full counsel of God, all that is profitable of us, for us. The, 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 the parts that are hard to hear, the parts that are pleasant to hear. Lord, we thank you that your word is the word of your grace. That whatever we hear from Paul, whatever tone it carries, whatever, whatever way it strikes us, Lord, we need to remember by faith, whatever the word of God speaks to us, it is the word of grace that beckons us to repentance and faith, and that warns us against the dangers to come. Make us a church that values the gospel and the purity of its message and therefore prays for and preserves the ministry in a high regard. And God, may you please save people among us 
those who are at home listening online, those who will go home from here today with the message heavy on their heart, send your Holy Spirit home with them. Convict them of sin. Give them faith. Turn them to Jesus. Bring them into this flock of God, this church of God that Jesus purchased with his very own blood. And everybody said, Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.